let's point out something very obvious. I got my hair done. <laughs> and my hair is pink, if you cannot tell. And lately I've been joking around that I hit my mermaid era, that like I'll just keep on getting different color, brightly colored hair. Um, but the reality is that I usually get my hair done when I am feeling overwhelmed and when I start to enter this realm that feels like hopelessness. Um, and we have been inundated with tragedy after tragedy, two mass shootings, whole communities in grief, lamenting with queer siblings, war in Ukraine, bombings in Palestine, violent suppression of anti-government protests in Iran, countless union labor um, protests, <clears throat> and observing a holiday that is a glaring reminder of native erasure and genocide. So I, to cope with all of this, got my hair done. <laughs> but I did it because I need tenderness. And getting my hair done is a type of ritual for myself that allows me to invite love back into my life when I feel like hopelessness is trying to take it away. You see, I come from a long line of black women and non-binary people who would get their hair done and they'd go to the hair salon to combat hopelessness. For many of us, the hair salon is the one place, if not the only place, where we would receive tenderness, community, and care in a place that hates us, in this country that hates us. And the thing about the hair salon is that it's this place of hope, not just because we get our hair pressed or braided, but because it's where civil rights organizing happened. In the 60s, beauticians were registering people to vote. They were holding citizenship education schools for immigrants. They were raising money to get people out of jail and organizing protests advocating for human rights for all. Many beauticians were the hubs for civil rights organizing and places where NAACP flyers would circulate because no one suspected it. The FBI was monitoring the barbershops. They didn't think the woman could organize. It was a space of care, of tenderness, and of hope. And when black women invested into their personal needs and their community care, they took part in shaping this nation, our civil rights movements of the 60s and of today. One facet of it is because black women got their hair done. The beauty salon is a place of hope. And today I am preaching about hope with pink butterfly locks. <laughs> and so I'm going to share the thesis of this sermon. The thesis of, this, of today's sermon is that hope is a discipline, it's not a feeling. Don't get it twisted. In this context, discipline does not mean punishment. Discipline is a practice of training and development that solidifies a behavior through consistency. To engage in hope, one must practice discipline. To engage in discipline, one must attempt Consistency in the face of obstacles, of struggles, of hardships, of barriers. Hope as a discipline is always going to be a struggle. But we can't really talk about hope if we don't talk about miracles. So let me first talk to you about the very first time I experienced a miracle. I was 10. 
maybe a little bit older. And I was at a family reunion for the black side of my family. And it was the second night of the family reunion. It's when we have a talent show and we give testimonies. It's called Talent and Testimonies. <laughs> We're very creative. Um, and my Aunt Rose walked up to the podium to speak. And with pride, she stood there with such grace and said, I am a miracle. And proceeded to tell us her testimony as a two-time cancer survivor. She talked of going to chemo, of losing her crown of glory, her hair, and doing her best to sit upright in a hospital bed moments before her surgeries so that she could pray with the surgeons and the techs and the nurses. And at the end of this sermon that she gave, we are crying because we're so thankful that the Lord let our Aunt Rose live with us for more years. And she just repeated herself, I am a miracle. My Aunt Rose taught me that miracles exist and that people are miracles. And it is our job to nurture the miraculous that lives inside of them. But there's this thing about miracles in the West. And Kate Beller, who is a historian of the American prosperity gospel, once explained that any time a miracle happened in the West, specifically in the United States and in Canada, there was this influx of praise and this burning desire to replicate it. A miracle couldn't simply be. It had to have a formula, and they were so dedicated to finding the formula to it. Faith leaders would try to analyze the miracle and the situations leading up to it in order to create what I would like to call a modified hope. And we here in the West are obsessed with miracles because we equate the good feeling with the hope, not the discipline. But that good feeling is not hope, and I want us to think about this during this Advent season when we see the cute holiday decorations, the cozy drinks, and the word hope constantly on display. We equate hope with happiness, but historically, every time that has been done, a whole community of people suffer. And because I am a researcher of sexual violence and Christianity, I'm going to use purity culture as the example of a genetically modified hope. Purity culture is a movement that use so-called biblical-based truths to promote sexual abstinence before marriage. And we often focus on the purity movement of the 90s. But in reality, purity culture is a formula that has been replicated for about 200 years in the United States. Sarah Mosliner, who is a purity culture historian, explained that every time there was a threat to the white American middle class, they would focus on preserving the virginity of girls to fabricate a miracle and create a hope that was specifically tied to their identities. The Cold War, desegregation, the AIDS epidemic, all of these events, which were seen as apocalyptic moments in the middle class, white middle class mindset, they were combated and with fabricated miracles that specifically pressured girls to stay virgins, and they always linked it to the Virgin Mary. And I want us to understand that a modified hope is dependent on stirring fear within the masses in order to create a villain that a false miracle can vanquish. 
It turns heaven into a weapon against those who don't, who don't fit in. And this is a formula that so many churches still stand by. Nuance rejects a simple story about people. And when we embrace nuance, we stop thinking of things in polar opposites. There is no hot and cold, no good, bad, no right, wrong. Instead, we tell a new story that honors our reality. And embracing nuance means we let go of stereotypes while also recognizing how those stereotypes cause harm to whole communities. People are complex. And that is a gift from the Lord. It does not mean that we let the complexity stop us from showing love. Jesus constantly teaches me that love burns brightest in the places where we honor complexity. And nuance requires us to listen and to join in with one another to create a new story where dignity and love are at the center. I'm going to pause here because I just watched Wakanda Forever yesterday. <laughs> And Ryan Coogler is really good at showing how you combat violence with nuance. So in case you are wondering, if you want a tangible example, please watch Black Panther and Wakanda Forever to see how that works. Let me get back in the sermon. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to read the Magnificat, which is the song of Mary, because young Mary creates space for nuance and I'm going to be reading from the First Nations translation of the Bible, which is actually a personal favorite of mine. Um, the translation was made by and for indigenous North American peoples, reclaiming and sharing the stories of the Bible to other native North American and English-speaking people. In this Bible, the Song of Mary is not called the Magnificat. It is called the Song of Bitter Tears. And per the First Nations translation, indigenous naming tradition is a name given, your name is given according to specific elements to that person's life. So Mary's name is actually Bitter Tears. And this is her song. From deep in my heart, I dance with joy to honor the Great Spirit. Even though I am small and weak, he noticed me. Now I will be looked up to, up to by all. The mighty one has lifted me up. His name is sacred. He is the great and holy one. And then her face seems to shine as she continues. He shows kindness and pity to both children and elders who respect him. His strong arm has brought low the ones who think they are better than others. He counts coup with arrogant warrior chiefs, but puts a headdress of honor on the ones with humble hearts. Let me pause here. Counting coup is the warrior tradition of prestige, winning prestige against your enemy in battle. <clears throat> in indigenous warfare, a warrior who could touch the enemy without harming them and return back to their encampment without harm is the one who receives glory in war. It's not about killing, it's about showing your enemy mercy. It is one of the traditional ways of showing bravery in the face of an enemy and involves intimidating him, but is also hoped to persuade him to admit defeat without having to kill anyone. When God counts coup, 
what God is doing is God is humbling someone and saying, I still think, I still believe that you can change. I will not strike you down. And so we continue on. <clears throat> Mary is smiling and looking up to the sky, and she is shouting for joy at this point. She says, he prepares a great feast for the ones who are hungry, but sends the fat ones home with empty bellies. He has been kind to the tribes of wrestles with creator who is known as Israel. He who walks in his ways, for he has remembered the ancient promises that he has made to our ancestors, the father of many nations known as Abraham and his descendants. And the song is made entirely of contradictions. It's so complex. It is not a simple story. You have a child who knows by her bitter tears, who is known by her bitter tears, she is shouting and singing for joy. She knows she'll be looked up to even though she is small and weak. God, the Great Spirit, shows kindness and pity to those who are overlooked and forgotten. God humbles people rather than kills them. The Great Spirit prepares food for those who have been shunned from the table. There is kindness to the one who wrestles with the Great Spirit, and ancient promises are remembered. They are not forgotten. From any other eye at that time, Mary's situation would have been defined as hopelessness and shame, and she was perfectly positioned to be a scapegoat. But Mary doesn't see it that way. She holds the nuance of her moment and embraces the contradictions of life to help us see how God dignifies those who are marginalized, that this is God's character, that this is God's justice. And that leads me to my last point. That embodied hope dismantles violence. And my absolute favorite thing about the Magnificat is how dangerous it is. So this is a song, sung by a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl who's pregnant. And it's actually one of the most banned parts of the Bible. When the British colonized South Asia, they purposefully removed the Magnificat in their colonial schools. They believed that if the people of India read this specific text, they would realize the empire's sins and revolt. When Europeans and slavers kidnapped indigenous Africans and forcefully transported them across the Atlantic on the Middle Passage, they created the Slaves Bible, which was a censored version of the Bible used as propaganda to spread the message that African enslavement was a part of God's will. They would walk across the slave ships and read these passages, and the Magnificat was left out. Before theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis at Flossenburg concentration camp, he preached that the Song of Mary was a revolutionary text on the power of God. He said that Nazism is a God complex, and Bonhoeffer actively defied that God complex by showing how Mary's song reveals humanity's powerlessness to a God of justice. In the 1980s, the Guatemalan government banned the reading and the speaking of the Magnificat because it was used as a text to organize and inspire impoverished Guatemalans to believe that change was possible. And in Argentina, at the Plaza de Mayo, the human rights group known as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo would chant the words of the Magnificat. They'd get together and they would chant it in unison so everyone could hear their voices. 
and they placed posters of its words throughout the Capitol Plaza as demonstration. This was how they demanded the government to bring back the children who disappeared and were trafficked under that military dictatorship. If you want to embody hope, you cannot tolerate what is intolerable. As my friend Robert likes to say, beloved, we come to the altar and lay down the both sides argument at the foot of Christ. God is not a centrist. God has clearly chosen a side. And to embody hope means that we have to choose a side. You must stand in the face of injustice and proclaim that dignity, safety, and care is a right that all creation deserves because God says it is so. It can look like a protest. It can look like a youth program, a community garden, being on the school board, a pregnancy center, a safe space, a group chat, or a system of care. Unfortunately, the time we live in is a stark contradiction to Mary's song. And people today, unfortunately, misuse the identity of God to uphold our everyday violences. But to embody hope is to keep God's vision and to struggle for it. And it's not easy. It's not done quickly. You will come across many moments of brokenness. You will come across your own bitter tears. And this week, as I was preparing the sermon, I was calling my mentor and I was crying and I was saying, I don't think I'm the one who's going to preach this sermon. This shouldn't be me. I need to ask someone else to do it. And she just said, Camille, hope means that you have to leave yourself open to heartache. I won't be lying if I said that hope makes you feel good because it doesn't. To have hope means that you live in defiance of something that is trying to kill you or your neighbor or someone in your community or someone you love. But like Mary singing her song, you have to have hope. To have hope is to believe that there is something more than the realities that we have been given. It is the glory of partnering with God to create a new world. That is what hope is. And there is this quote that I think of by Marsha P. Johnson. When I think of embodying hope, she was an African-American trans woman who was credited with starting the Stonewall Rebe Rebellion that launched the LGBTQ rights movement every year during Pride. She started that. That was her. What people don't usually know is that she was a devout Christ follower throughout her life. She was a part of the African-American Methodist Episcopalian Church. She converted to Catholicism. She loved Jesus. And her desire to care for her community in the same way that Jesus cares for every lamb is what led to her co-creating the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries which is one of the few, if not only, organizations caring for homeless or runaway transgender people when we talk about God being for the hurting and the lost, when God is for the widow, the sojourner, the immigrant. These two are sojourners, people who had been denied from their families. Marsha P. Johnson once said, 
History isn't something you look back at and say that it was inevitable. It happened because people make decisions that are sometimes very impulsive and of the moment, but those moments create our cumulative realities. And I want to let you know that there is no reaching perfection in hope. It is a discipline that we grow into every day. Our Kanaka siblings, the indigenous people of Hawaii, have this word, kuleana. It is the Hawaiian word for responsibility. It's often associated with privilege required for taking care of peoples or community. Kuleana is only given to those who demonstrate their readiness and worthiness to handle a responsibility. Not everyone gets to have kuleana. But Jesus had it. And his kuleana is foretold in the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to read it in the Hawaiian pidgin language. Because I have a fondness for pidgin languages around the globe. I'm so excited for your excitement. <laughs> to me, pidgin languages around the world represent hope. Whether it is Hawaiian pidgin, whether it is Creole, whether it is Patois. They're created when groups of people, usually those who are displaced, tortured, and oppressed, come together to create a common language out of their native tongues. They are languages of solidarity and resistance. And so knowing this, I will read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 to you. Also know that I do not have a pigeon accent, so this is going to be a struggle. <laughs> Because one baby gone born for us, guys. One boy that God gives us. The government gonna be his kuleana. This the name Piopo gonna give him the awesome one. That show us the bestest things for though. The God that get all the power. The father that stay forever. The leader that make us come so nothing bother us. He gonna come the leader for the government. And he gonna make everything come. So nothing, nothing but a nobody. And for sure, he gonna do that. He gonna be the king on top of the throne. Just like King David, his ancestral guy. He gonna judge everybody the right way. And he going to do the right thing every time. From the time he come, the king, he gonna make sure he stay king forever. All this gonna happen. Because the one in charge, the boss above over all the armies, going to make sure this going to happen. Jesus had kuleana when he walked this earth. When Jesus returns, there will be kuleana upon him. And yet he gives us kuleana, but we must grow into it so that the kingdom of heaven exists without bigotry or violence, or bias. To engage in the discipline of hope is to grow into our capacity to care for one another and to dismantle the violences that harm us all. Would you please pray with me? Lord, 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 Lord.
Thank you. Thank you for being the one who cares for us. Thank you for being the one who stands with us. You know my prayers, and you know all the words, including the cuss words in my prayers. And I thank you that you listen. I thank you that you are a God of action, that you have created us and chosen us to reveal your hope into the world, to reclaim what it means to hope. And Lord, I just ask that we hear your song, we hear your word, day in and day out, that we strive towards building our own discipline of hope, towards building an ethic of care that is befitting of you, that honors you. I know you will remove what needs to be removed from our hearts. I don't have to ask it, but Lord, be tender with us in that process. Remind us that sin is complex and we are sinful, so we are complexity living. And guide us. Guide us in your strength. Guide us in your mercy. Guide us in your will, Lord. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for the ways you build us up, and thank you for the ways that you break our hearts for you. Please, Lord, let us know that you are here. Be as tangible to us, tangible to those who are listening, tangible to our community and our neighbors and our loved ones. Be tangible in the ways that we care and be tangible in the ways where we just don't have an answer or a way forward. <laughs>